this parable is this, this lesson. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And we said that that was a fact of life that's easily explained, that if we fail to fulfill our obligations, if we fail to appreciate our blessings, then all the things that we cherish, our place, our position, can be taken away from us very easily. Perhaps you're a business owner here this afternoon and you have had to do the sad tasks of firing someone from your employment. Uh, why? Because they fail to appreciate the blessings that are theirs and they end up uh, maybe stealing from you or were just lazy or careless. Uh, politicians know that there are consequences to forgetting who put them there in the first place and why. And governments rise and fall, they change because the ones serving fail to live up to their promises or they misuse their offices or they were not financially responsible. With great privilege comes great responsibility. Disrespect and ingratitude is something that we would say is intolerable. And that's where we said Israel was headed. They had held a very privileged position for centuries. They were God's treasured possession. They were his vineyard. And they failed to return to him the fruit that was rightfully his. And they chose time after time after time, century after century, to walk in disobedience. And despite the continual warnings and calls to repentance through his prophets, his servants, they persisted in their stubbornness. And at the time of Jesus, not much had changed. The religious leaders opposed God's Christ again and again, and now they had begun to, make a, uh, to plot how they might destroy him. And so Jesus tells them this parable intended to show them their unfaithfulness and the consequences of that unfaithfulness. And we said that we too, beloved of God, can learn from this parable as well, that we might never take our blessings for granted, that we would never neglect our duty, what we owe to the one who has engrafted us into his vine. Our theme, we said, as we summarize this passage, is this, Jesus proclaims the consequences of refusing to give what we owe to God. Jesus proclaims the consequences of refusing to give what we owe to God. We saw our first point this morning, God's incredible patience. And this afternoon, we're looking at our second point, God's eventual judgment. But as Jesus proclaims the consequences of refusing to give what we owe to God, we see in the second place, God's eventual judgment. This parable contains a warning that judgment was about to fall on the nation of Israel as a whole. Their privileged position would be taken away and given to others who would bear the fruit that they had failed to bear. Now, we paused at the owner sending his son to receive what he was owed from the tenants. He was going to send his son thinking that they would certainly respect him, even if they disregarded the ones he had, uh, who had come with delegated authority, they certainly would respect his son, or so he thought. But he miscalculates the depth of their greed and their disrespect. And so we read in verse 7 and 8, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and they killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. And so the wicked tenants see this as an opportunity to be done with their obligation once and for all with this uh, owner of the vineyard. And so they coldly 
and premeditatively plan and they carry out the murder of their landlord's son. They symbolically drag him out of the vineyard and they kill him. This was, we might say, the climax of their outrageous behavior to what their master, who had, as we saw this morning, graciously entrusted them to his excellent vineyard. They kill his son like a criminal and they cast him out. And if the listeners to Jesus were paying attention, they had to see the injustice of such behavior. And that's exactly where Jesus wanted to bring them. He wanted to bring their thoughts to the wickedness of, the, of failing to recognize the responsibilities that come with great privilege. And so Jesus, at this point now, begins to open their eyes to the meaning of the parable. And he turns the implications of the parable to the nation of Israel together with their leaders. And so he says, uh, this is his application of this parable, verses 10 and 11, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And by the way, in this parable, Jesus was gradually lifting the veil that concealed his identity. On the one hand, he still stood in continuity with the Old Testament prophets, but he was showing in this parable, he was giving a little bit of a glimpse, he was lifting the veil a little bit, that he was so much more, that he was the beloved son and heir of the vineyard. And what was their response to him? Already and in the days to come, Jesus tells them, quoting Psalm 118, verse 2, they would reject him. Like the son of the landowner, he would be cast from the vineyard, he would be brutally murdered. And Jesus, we know, was uh, crucified outside of the city. And so he fulfills this prophecy to the letter. As builders discard a stone that they deem to be useless, so Jesus would be despised and rejected by his people. Now, let's dig a little bit deeper here and ask this question, where does this language of cornerstone even come from? Well, actually, we can trace this all the way back to Genesis chapter 49, verse 24. And this is the first time where we hear this kind of language of God being spoken of uh, as a stone. And here in Genesis 49 verse 24, we read of the source of Joseph's strength. This is in the context of um, uh, Jacob giving blessings, uh, extending blessings to his sons. And here uh, we're given the source of Joseph's strength and success. It's revealed as the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And so, for the first time in the Bible, we hear God referred to as a stone or rock. And the image of stone or rock, or even mountain, pictures the Lord's sturdy strength and unwavering helpfulness. He's called a rock again in Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, and many, many times in the Psalms. And so, when we hear these terms, rock, stone, in the Bible, our minds have to go to God, which is where the, the mind of the Israelite would have gone. To the divine. Now, let's spice up the stew just a little bit more. I'm going to read for you Isaiah 28, verse 16. Isaiah 28, verse 16. Listen to this, this prophecy. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid, who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation, Whoever believes will not be in haste. 
And so let me set this up for you. This word was spoken through the prophet Isaiah to the leaders of Israel. And the Lord comes to them through his prophet to chastise them for things like drunkenness. They had made a covenant with death, he says. They had boasted that no scourge could harm them. They trusted in their own lies. In other words, they had confidence in themselves. And against this background of Israel's vanity, their pride, against this backdrop of the weak foundation on which they rested, God declares to them through his prophet that he himself would lay a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. In other words, in response to their reliance on what could only bring destruction, the Lord was going to act. And he would implant firmly on the earth a stone, in a manner of speaking, which could not be moved, upon which one may build in true safety and confidence. And that stone, of course, we know was the Lord Jesus Christ. And even he, according to Psalm 118, verse 2, would be rejected. Now, before we take this one step further and ask how this applies to you and me, we first have to see, and we have to see this, it's very important, that none of this was outside of God's plan, none of this was outside of God's will. We read in verse 12 that the religious leaders now sought to arrest Jesus, literally to lay hands on him. Why? They were angered by the parable that he had told because he was basically saying that they were the ones that, he, that, this, this, uh, that this parable, that this prophecy spoke of. They were the ones upon whom God's judgment would fall. And this anger would only escalate in them as time went on. And the end result would be the death of Jesus. But what we have to see is this was all within God's plan. None of this was outside of his will. In God's plan, in fact, that rejected stone, the Lord Jesus Christ, would eventually occupy the place of highest honor and function. God, the ultimate owner of the vineyard, would come and he would, through Christ, destroy the vine dressers and he would give the vineyard to others. This was within his providence and his sovereign will. In other words, God's kingdom would be snatched away from Israel and given to others who would produce its fruit. And you have to realize what an appalling message this would have been to those who counted themselves worthy of God's love because of their lineage to Abraham. But this certainly would be realized is after Jesus Christ rose from the dead after his resurrection the gospel began to be preached to gentiles like you and me non-jews and in AD 70 the romans would destroy the temple altogether but what was bad news for them is good news for us because this is where you and i come into the picture brothers and sisters jesus said in matthew 8 verses 11 to 12 Matthew 8, verses 11 to 12, listen to what he says. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, Jesus spoke this word, you might remember, when a Roman centurion confessed faith in him. 
And Jesus marveled because he had not seen such faith even from among God's people. And in that context, he then announces a day when many will come, he says, from the east and from the west. That is, outsiders, non-Israelites. And they would enjoy fellowship with the patriarchs. And the sons of the kingdom would be cast out into outer darkness. They would be outside of God's favor, where there would be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Pictures of, of deep sorrow and anguish and regret. In John 10, Jesus spoke of other sheep that he would bring in. In Matthew 21, verse 31, he spoke of prostitutes and tax collectors who were entering the kingdom ahead of the Jews. In Romans 11, Paul speaks of wild olive shoots being engrafted into the olive tree. Listen as well to a very powerful uh, set of verses in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 19 to verse 22. And this is, again, speaking to us. Paul addresses us in this. Ephesians 2, starting at verse 19 to 22. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens... But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is us being spoken of here. This is spoken to us. We are the ones who were formerly outside of the kingdom and have now been drawn in. We are the ones who were former strangers and aliens to God's covenant of grace who now enjoy in Christ the full rights of sons by the mercy of God. Through the unjust death of God's son, he would bring in those who were former outsiders. This is the good news in this passage. This is the gospel here. And we have to see that, and we have to rejoice in it, because there's more to say, unfortunately, but we need to see that. We need to hold on to that and rejoice in it, that the glorious gates of righteousness have been thrown open to people like you and me, to give us entrance into the throne room and into the love of God our Father. And I would dearly love to end right there and just say amen right here, to end on a high note, as it were. But a preacher has to preach the text. And if I stop there, I would not be doing this passage of Scripture justice. And so we have to hear also the subtle but actually blaring warning to us as well as God's people today. And may the Lord open our hearts and minds that we may see that with our great privilege comes great responsibility. Listen carefully to what Jesus says to the Jews in our parable. The vineyard of God will be given to others. That's us. And what's left unsaid, but clearly obvious if you think about it, is that the new tenants, that's us, must produce fruit for God. Okay? The vineyard will be taken away and given to the new tenants. What's left unsaid, but is obvious, the new tenants must produce fruit for God. In Romans 11, Paul sounds a fierce warning to New Testament Israel. That is the church. In Romans 11, verse 19 to, 20, oh, 19 to 22. Romans 11, 19 to 22. Then you will say, again, this is, addresses us. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. 
but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spear the natural branches, neither will he spear you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. The sense here, beloved of God, is that we too are never to take our wonderful privileges, God's children, for granted. Because our unfaithfulness can lead to serious consequences. And if we don't, according to the Apostle Paul, we can expect that the church and the gospel would be snatched out of our hands as well. Now, we're not talking here about um, election, one losing their salvation. We know that that is not true. It is not possible. If God chooses you, he, he shall certainly bring you to salvation. We're talking about uh, curses, let's call it that, that would come upon the church, with the God's judgment coming upon the church of Jesus Christ if we drift away and become apathetic. Can this happen? Certainly it can. Think of the condition of the many denominations who have in our day, in our culture, set aside God's word. They've made a conscious decision. We don't want to hear what the Bible has to say. We don't want God's word to lead us. They don't even call it God's word anymore. We will decide what is best for us and for the church. Think about what has happened to them, the consequences of those actions who have set God's word aside, who, instead of asking, what does the God of the Bible require in worship, began to ask, how can we make church less church churchy and more seeker-friendly, more man-friendly? Who caved into the agendas of the feminists and the liberals and the intellectuals and the progressives? What has happened to them? They're empty of the gospel. They're empty of, of God's truth. I was actually told by a, a pastor in my area, and he actually said this out, uh, right out, that he would not dare to speak of God only in the masculine. He would not dare to only speak of God as he or him, because if he did that, then he said a third of my congregation will be very offended. And so he has to mix up his genders when he's talking about God. In many assemblies that still claim the title church, sin is not preached, nor God's call to holiness, much less the blood of Jesus shed for sinners. That's the result of God's judgment, really, of people watering down or compromising the gospel, the truth. They no longer have the gospel. God snatches it out of their hands, and they become nothing more than social clubs who swallow everything that secular culture teaches. And brothers and sisters, that's not to make ourselves feel proud or lift ourselves above any, um, anybody else or, or put ourselves up on a pedestal. No, we must be praying. And we must be thankful that God has indeed blessed us and we are still a part of a faithful church. But we must be praying as well that the churches who have left the straight and narrow for the broad and wide, that they would experience a, re a reawakening, a repentance, a reformation in our time. We must be praying for revival in the church of Christ here in North America because it's very evident that God's judgment, even now, still comes upon the unfaithful church. And there will be a final judgment at the second coming of Jesus that will fall upon all heretics and false teachers and hypocrites. 
And so we ought to be praying for churches in our land. And beloved of God, we must continue to live faithfully and thankfully, bearing fruit for our Father in heaven. Well, what does that look like, actually? What is bearing fruit for God? Listen, for instance, just to give you a few examples, listen, for instance, to how Peter summarizes our new status and calling in Christ. This is uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 9. Again, addressing us, but you are a chosen race. And again, this was language that was used of Israel in the Old Testament. Now it's used directed to us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So far, so good. Wonderful. Here's why. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so our new status lifts every one of us to the office of proclaimers, announcers of the good news of God's salvation in Christ. And so in our homes, with our families, in the workplace, in our schools, in our communities, even in our churches, we are to be speaking of and living the glorious gospel. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. We all are proclaimers of that good news. Living as fruit bearers also calls us to living trustfully. Trust is exhibited in the way we deal with the stresses from day to day. How we balance being wise towards with believing that God will provide. What a witness we can be what fruit we can bear for God as we trust in Him in good times and bad, especially in these very bizarre and uncertain times. Living trustfully, that's the way we bear fruit for God. We also bear fruit for God simply in the way we pray. That sounds strange, but think about it this way. When Dad prays, for instance, around the table of devotions time, or when we as a congregation or fellow believers, when we pray at get-togethers, when we're asked, boys and girls, to pray in class, in school perhaps, maybe sometimes your teachers uh, give you tur- uh, to, uh, allow you to take a turn to pray in class, when we pray in those settings, when we pray, when we go out, say for instance, when the public can observe us, when we go out to dinner or whatever, these are all opportunities to bear fruit for God. How so? Because we can be witnesses of our dependence on God just in the way we pray. These are opportunities to exhibit our sense of utter helplessness and yet our willingness to leave matters of great concern with God. Something to think about to be sure that our simple words can have a changing effect on others. We can also be good fruit bearers simply by being content with our lives, giving no room to things like jealousy, selfishness, covetousness, greed. You see, the world lives that way, judging people by their looks and their wealth and their clothes and their intellect and their race. And and we have to realize and be honest with ourselves that those temptations lie in all our hearts as well. And we too are prone to forget that that all that we have and are is a product of God's gracious mercy toward us. And so we ought not to live as the world does. Instead, this parable calls us to accept 
and to be thankful for what God has given us. That's bearing fruit for God. In other words, to put this more practically, in the church, there should be no grumpy old people. There should be no snobbish young people. There should be no resentful people. You know the kind I'm talking about who look over at their neighbor and they think, well, you drive a nicer car than me, you make more money than me, your business is doing better than I am, you dress, whatever it may be, and we're resentful. The church should not have people like that existing. If we understand the goodness of God to us, the church should not have, and I have to be careful how I say this, angry, sick people. Okay? By that I mean, and I have an, a, a chronically sick wife as well too. And what... Um, what can happen is over when, when, when illness is ongoing, chronic, over long periods of time, or when, when a doctor says, well, there's nothing we can do about your condition. We can only treat the symptoms, whatever it may be. People can get tired, and a certain amount of anger can build up in them. You know, sometimes you even, and that's a sinful part of us, we can even think, well, why me, right? I try to be faithful, I pray every day, I read my Bible, and, and here I am, suffering, especially when the suffering involves great pain and, uh, and discomfort in our lives. If we understand the Holy Scriptures, the church should not, and this is not to be unsympathetic, um, but the church should not contain angry, sick people. All of these things are the opposite of fruit-bearing. And of course, the most precious fruit for which God comes looking is what we're doing right now, worship. Every Lord's Day, as we gather, as we congregate, there's a reason why the, the pastor addresses the congregation as congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. God gathering His people, assembling them together. That's why it's so important that we uh, get back into a normal routine as fast as possible, where we can all assemble together as God's people. But every Lord's Day, as we gather, as we congregate, we are to bring a gift for God. Not just in our wallets, but more importantly, the gift of our hearts, the gift of our lips, the gift of our ears, and certainly the gift of our hands. And this begins already with proper preparation. You know, sometimes people say, well, I, I, don't, I didn't get anything out of worship, or I don't get anything out of worship. Quite often, that's not the fault of the church, it's not the fault of the pastor, it's your own fault because you didn't get a good night's sleep, you didn't spend enough time preparing properly for worship. It's as simple as that. You know, you want to get more out of worship, get a good night's sleep. Go to bed by 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock the night before and get up rested. Pray beforehand. Spend some time reading the Bible. If you know what the pastor is going to be preaching on, spend some time reading it, praying over it, praying for yourself, praying for the congregation, praying for the pastor as he, pre as he preaches, so that when we come together as God's people, when we congregate, we will give to God worship that He is worthy of, worship that is reverent and yet joyful. Think about this as we sing as we give and as we listen during prayer times. Congregation Israel showed shameless disregard for their privileged position. They professed to be God's people all along, but they're living, they're dealing with each other, their pride, their greed, their gluttony, their self-indulgence, their failure to witness to the world. These things betrayed hearts that were actually far from God. They partook of God's blessings but they failed to give him his due. 
and they paid dearly for it. Let this not be true of us as members of God's kingdom, as those who have now been engrafted into his kingdom through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Membership, as the old saying goes, certainly has its privileges. But membership also comes with obligations to produce fruit for God. Honesty, humility, purity, truth, patience, joy. These are the kinds of things that must characterize us. These are the things that are worthy in God's sight. We are to make no alliances with sin. We are to be seeking continuously after righteousness. We must be arming ourselves with good deeds. Now, let me quickly say that this does not mean that this is strictly up to us. As if we can run in our own strength, we must be looking to God for continued grace and strength each and every day. We have to remember that we are not to try to be better and godlier fathers and mothers, children, employees, employers, citizens, spouses. We're not to try to do these things in our own strength and our own abilities because we will fail. What did Jesus say? He made it very clear, didn't he? When he taught that he is the vine, we are the branches. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so every day is a day for us to be asking, seeking, knocking. And beloved of God, let not the joy, the thankfulness, the confidence that we sing about evaporate like the morning dew when we leave this house. We live under the gracious blessing of God in Christ. He has called us out of darkness into the eternal kingdom of His Son by His grace and mercy. May the Lord bless us that our response to all of this would be a heartfelt Amen.